The sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. The sound of the Amis tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Catch us on the web at english.rti.org.tw. What's this all about? Why are they doing that? What's going on here? It's Curious John. What is he curious about today? Taiwan has set itself an ambitious goal. Wean itself off nuclear power and generate enough electricity from renewable resources to meet 20% of its power needs. The timetable for this goal? 2025. To reach such a difficult target, Taiwan will have to tap into every renewable resource it has. That includes wind and solar energy, of course, but also less visible sources, including one right beneath our feet. Taiwan is a tectonically active land, with plenty of hot springs and even a volcano or two. So what kind of potential does it have to generate geothermal power? There's hardly a better person to put these kinds of questions to than Professor Song Shengrong of National Taiwan University's Department of Geosciences. He's a member of multiple international geothermal groups, advises on geothermal projects, and is part of the editorial committee for an academic journal devoted to geothermal power. We're fortunate to have him here with us today to help explain what, for non-specialists like me, can be an intimidating subject. So how much geothermal power can Taiwan generate? It's a question people have been wondering about for decades. In the 1960s and 70s, back when Taiwan still held China's seat at the UN, the UN helped with some surveys close beneath the surface of the Earth. Professor Song says these surveys found 26 potential sites for geothermal power and estimated that close to the surface, Taiwan could generate up to one gigawatt of power. That's a billion watts, not an insignificant amount. In the years since Taiwan was kicked out of the UN, though, work to actually exploit this potential has had mixed results. In the 1980s, a plant was built in Qingshui, near Taiwan's northeast coast in Yilan County. That had to be shut down due to poor efficiency. But it seems like Qingshui is an especially favorable site, because that first failure hasn't stopped new experiments in the same place. A pilot project was run there from 1991 to 2004, and last year, a new 3-megawatt plant was opened there. It seems to be doing well. At the end of this year, Qingshui is going to get another plant, this time even bigger, at 4.2 megawatts. Professor Song himself is a consultant on this project. Qingshui isn't the only place where geothermal power is taking off. 
Remember how we said that Taiwan has about one gigawatt of potential just underneath its surface? Well, about half of that potential energy is just north of Taipei, in a Datuan volcanic area. And not long ago, drilling work started there for a new pilot project. The goals seem to be modest, generate enough power for a few thousand households. If there's so much potential in those mountains, why stop there? One big reason is that for all our general surveys, the only way to really know the precise conditions underground at any spot is to drill, and that costs money. Before work on any plant can begin, Professor Song says you have to drill down and figure out things like how heat is flowing in a given spot, and where pockets of heat are concentrated. Very often, after drilling gets started, it will turn out that a chosen site isn't suitable. Professor Song says the rate of this failure can be as high as 80 to 90 percent. The Datuan Volcano Project also faces another particular challenge. With a heated liquid there having pHs of 3 to 2, this makes any installations like pipes a real problem. If made of iron or other conventional materials, they'll just corrode away. But if made of more resistant materials like titanium, they risk becoming prohibitively expensive. In other words, drillers there are going to have to prove enough potential to justify the cost of going in in the first place. With high financial risks, a mixed record of success, and the problem of acidic liquid right at the place where half Taiwan's near-surface potential is supposed to be, it may sound like geothermal power isn't the most viable option for Taiwan. But Professor Song says advances in technology are, on the contrary, making it all the more viable. Problems with efficiency, like those of the 1980s, have been solved thanks to more advanced technology that can generate power even if temperatures are relatively low. And then there's technology that might just bring a big and largely untapped source of power within Taiwan's reach. So far, we've talked about power near the surface of the Earth. You remember one gigawatt, right? But surveys done since 2008 have penetrated much deeper and found that if we could only get at it, Taiwan might just have around 30 gigawatts worth of geothermal power. That number probably doesn't mean a lot to you. It didn't to me when Professor Song first said it. Until, that is, he pointed out that under ideal conditions, the maximum output of Taiwan's state power company is 40 gigawatts. Now, tapping into most of that potential may still be beyond our power, but Professor Song says there is a way that we could exploit energy from up to several kilometers beneath the surface. The secret is what's called an enhanced geothermal system. This is being used in various countries already. It apparently involves injecting cool water into a loop that runs through cracks deep into the Earth's surface. Cool water goes in one side, it gets heated up, and then comes out the other, where its heat makes it useful. So, technologically speaking, we're better equipped than ever before to harness the power of the Earth's heat. But Professor Song also believes that we're more politically prepared than ever before. Growing environmental consciousness makes taxpayers want green power, and makes the government more willing to bear the costs. 
And now, when the government takes environmental costs into account, it sees that investing in more expensive green power will save it money in the long run. And there's also been a change in government thinking. In the past, the top priority when it came to generating power was driving down costs. To do that, investment went into big, centralized plants. But in a land as prone to disasters as Taiwan, it's become clear that this approach may not be the best one. Professor Song cites the horrific 1999 Jiji earthquake, when alongside a massive death toll and heavy damage, many areas suffered power outages. It only took a few links in that centralized chain to break, and much of the grid was offline. This happens on a smaller scale pretty much every summer whenever a typhoon comes through. Especially hard hit are indigenous communities in the mountains, who are often at the far ends of the grid's reach. Having more, smaller plants spread out and making use of many different kinds of power spreads the risks of blackout and makes sure that no matter what, Taiwan has at least some power to go around. And why not use geothermal? It's just sitting there waiting to be tapped into 24 hours a day. In fact, why not build geothermal plants in those same mountain communities that often get cut off from the grid? After all, they're often in the same places where hot springs of a suitable temperature could be put to work right away. These villages could go from being at the remote ends of the grid to nodes along it, helping spread out the burden of generating Taiwan's power and boosting local economies at the same time. Professor Song says that geothermal power alone is never going to be enough to meet Taiwan's needs. But it's part of a healthy mix of energy sources that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions and keep the lights on. For now, he estimates that if well exploited, the heat of the Earth could meet up to one-tenth of the government's 20% renewable target. Taiwan, like other nations, cannot depend on any single power source, but it is at least blessed with enough power from beneath its own ground to make a significant dent in its dependence on less benign sources of power. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. How many 24-hour news channels does a country need? One? Two? Five? How about 13? Seems a bit much, doesn't it? Well, that's what we have here in Taiwan, and those channels, for better or worse, have become a fixture in the nation's soundscape. I'm Andrew Ryan, and in today's Ear to the Ground, I bring you Channel Surfing. An Ear to the Ground. The news begins with an important pacey jingle, and the anchor begins to talk. The TV screen is full of information. There are scrolling headlines at the top, bottom, and on one side, and text flashes across the screen to identify the speaker. 
And then there's the subtitles, and the weather, and on some channels, the stock ticker. And if, God forbid, there's a natural disaster, they might even shrink the anchor down to just one-ninth of the screen. And the reporting, like here in Taiwanese, well, it's often at breakneck speed. It sounds urgent, important, necessary, and perhaps even a little frightening. Even if it's just a story about the president's new son-in-law, who used to be a male model in Milan. It's fear that keeps people watching, right? Thirteen channels compete for your attention on cable or one of the other digital services. They also compete for stories in a limited space, a relatively small island that could fit into Switzerland. Brigades of SNG trucks chase stories and then beam them back to the mothership via satellite. But the question is, do we need 13 versions of a house fire? Or like this report, a concert from last night? To be fair, people usually consume TV news as entertainment. So don't be surprised if you see a story about a YouTube video, or maybe some video footage of the front page of a newspaper, or a review of the restaurant down the street. Strangely, though, you won't see any specific information about that restaurant, the location, the phone number, or even the name. That's because there are strict rules against product placement in the news. But it's the talk shows, like this one, which often provide the best entertainment. Panels of so-called experts yelling about different news stories, everything from the truly newsworthy to things like, well, whether the presidential office should have kept the first daughter's marriage a secret. The irony with that story is it became a news story because they were trying to avoid all the journalists. But the president's daughter can rest assured that hot topics are only hot for about three minutes. They call it Sanfen Zhongru, or three-minute fever. We, the general public, have a very short collective attention span. Whether you love them or hate them, Taiwan's 24-hour news channels are here to stay. And with more than 80% of the nation using cable, it's no surprise that you'll see TVs everywhere, from your favorite roadside restaurant to the taxi you're riding in. In fact, there was a TV sitting right in front of me as I prepared this piece. Reporters Without Borders has ranked Taiwan's media the freest in Asia. So from that perspective, you can see that 13 24-hour news channels is a sign of a robust media market that's fueled by the freedom of speech. And if you ever begin to feel that the content is somehow lacking, and that, if I can twist a line of Bruce Springsteen's, there's 13 channels with nothing on, you can always turn your TV off. With an ear to the ground, I'm Andrew Ryan.
Okay, Ellen, pull yourself together already. It's time to feast. Sit down at the table with Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu on Feast Meets West. Hello, welcome to the feast, and this is Ellen Chu. And this is Andrew Ryan. How are you, Ellen Chu? I'm doing just fine. Okay, doing just fine. But today is not my day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it should be my day because June 13 is Rihanna's birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Rihanna! How old yes, is she? Yes, she'll be turning nine today. Oh wow! And the funny thing is that yesterday she, you know, she lay down next to me. You know, we went to bed, right? And then she suddenly just start tearing. I'm like, "What's wrong?" And she's like, "You're not gonna be here when I grow up." Oh wow, that's kind of early to be having that kind of a、I、response,、know. isn't it? Strange, huh? Were you? Were you? What did you say? I said, eventually, I said, just don't make me angry and don't do things that make me upset, and I can live longer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a smart mom moment, right?、I'm、a momment. Momment. Okay. <laughs> I mean, grab the chance <laughs> and let them know.、Oh. But this morning, she started to, you know, make me angry again. Now, what'd <laughs> you do? <laughs> you know, she just had a bad morning. You know, kind of like you know, don't have her black coffee or something like that. Oh, she got off the wrong side of the bad bed. Bad hair day. Yes.、Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to hear about that.、Yeah. Oh, wow, that's、yeah. a big thought for a nine-year-old. Yep. Although to be honest, I was thinking the same things when I was nine. So really, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so today we are going to be talking about your favorite thing, Ellen Chu. Hmm. <laughs> I can see the big four-letter word milk. <laughs> yeah. So Ellen and I are both lactose intolerant, so it might be a little bit strange that we're、mm-hmm. introducing milk in our show today. Yes. Well, the reason why we're doing it is because June first、mm-hmm. was World Milk Day. Oh my goodness!、Um, neither one of us celebrated. No. <laughs> And I grew up just fine without it. <laughs> really? Did when you were a kid? Did you you didn't have milk? I did. I got forced to drink milk, you know, because my mom never really tested me with、mm. you know lactose intolerance, And she just thought that I was being picky with my food. Oh. And she was just one of those moms that just forced me to drink one glass per day. Did you have any tricks for trying to like get the milk down when you were a kid? Yeah, I put like you know Hershey's chocolate syrup, you know, <laughs> squeeze it, and then you know I blend it to get rid of you know the milk taste. And you know this trick, I always tell my mom I can drink chocolate milk, and she's just like, no, you're just gonna drink it plain and white, okay? I'm not gonna allow you to add any chocolate. I said, you know. If I just drink plain milk, I said I feel really, really uncomfortable. She said you're a liar. She well, said I was a liar. Well, you have to admit, Ellen Chu, if a mother hears her daughter saying, "I can drink it and it's healthier for me to drink it if you put chocolate syrup no, in it," I didn't say healthier. <laughs> I said that it makes me feel better. You know, of I could chuck it down and then it tastes better. But I、know? think all kids would feel better, right? But, so, but you're saying it's not just making it sweeter, right? But you know, years later, it's like after I moved back to Taiwan, and then you know I had this allergy test, and then it proved that I was lactose intolerant. And then、uh, I asked the doctor. The strangest thing is that you know I always had to like convince my mom and tell them that you know I can actually add things to my milk in order to to really you know feel okay to drink it down. And I said, is that 
you know, psychological? He、mm. said, no. He said, I was very smart because adding different things, maybe be a fruit or, you know, chocolate syrup, can really break down the molecules of the, the lactose. The lactose, really?、Mm-hmm. So basically, he said that I had a very sensitive body. So I knew what, you know, what I couldn't intake. And what could I, I could, and how I can you know, make it into that it suits myself. I think that's amazing because, I mean, literally any parent who's like, here's their kid say, if I just add chocolate syrup to my milk, it'll make it okay. That sounds like the kid is just trying to get something exactly. sweet. Exactly. Right?、Uh-huh. But you're saying that the doctor said that actually works, it、yes. breaks down the lactose. Yes. So,、uh, in today's show, we do have,、um, we do have a beverage sitting here next、mm-hmm. to me, which has milk in it.、Mm-hmm. Um, I have a good feeling that maybe I will probably be taking a sip of it.、Mm-hmm. And Ellen is going to take a nice big sniff. Okay. <laughs> I could but, probably drink it with papaya in there. Okay. Maybe but I have a sip. I would have a sip, but not、yeah. a whole glass. Okay. Well,、uh, do what you feel comfortable with.、Um, and the surprise about what actually happens in today's show will come a little bit later on in our third course. Okay. Shall we check out what's on our menu first, though? Sure. Let's do it. Okay, today's menu, first course, we'll tell you all about World Milk Day. Do you think Taiwanese people get enough milk in their diet? Mmm. Well, hmm. Mmm, we'll have、yeah. that answer. Okay. In our second course, we talk with Gold Thread reporter Daphne Lee about a recent article in which she said that papaya milk might say more about Taiwan's unique culture and history than boba tea. Ooh, and、mm. in third and final course, we'll be sampling papaya milk right here in the studio. That's right. But first, a song. And this is a milky song for you to get you started.、Mm. It is called Re Niao Nai. Hot milk. And it's by Ye Nai Wen. All right. <laughs> 
Are you listening? <laughs> This is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Second course. Alrighty, Milky friends. This is our Milky show, and we are introducing milk, especially World Milk Day, which was June first.、Mm -hmm. But also, like, what's the situation here in Taiwan? We're going to tell you all about it. Okay. So, twenty、so. years ago, World Milk Day was established by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. And what was it to do? So the reason why the United Nations wanted to do this is they wanted to recognize the importance of milk as a global food and to celebrate the dairy sector. You know, there was a period of time when they were trying to get kids、mm -hmm. to drink formula instead of their mother's milk, and of course, that recommendation has since changed. Taiwan Ministry of Health found that from 2013 to 2016, 90% of people in Taiwan did not get enough dairy products in their daily diet. I believe that. 90% of people. So almost nobody is getting the full recommended daily portion of dairy. Right. So what is the daily portion? Well, they're recommending a glass of milk in the morning and the evening for people of all ages.、Mm -hmm. Now it doesn't have to be milk.、Mm -hmm. um, they could say 500 milliliters of milk a day only accounts for half of our daily dairy needs. Okay. So you can make up the other half with cheese. And other dairy、uh, in your diet, so things like yogurt,、mm -hmm. or、uh, I don't know, does ice cream count? <laughs> I think so. If it's got milk in it, yeah. You know. Right. Yeah. I drink yogurt,、mm. but I don't drink it daily. Right. Right. Now, what about people who are lactose intolerant? This one's for you, Ellen Chu. Yes, please tell me. You can get calcium through other channels. Things beans. like beans are great. Um, you can also get them from dark-colored vegetables and greens. I eat a lot of that, ladies and gentlemen. She eats her veggies. I eat my veggies, all kinds of veggies. Okay, especially green veggies. I can eat a whole bulb all by myself.、Okay? She can. And so? also, you can get it through other things that don't have lactose, like、mm -hmm. yogurt, yogurt drinks, and cheese.、Mm. Um, but、uh, of course, you want to if you're. Totally lactose intolerant, can't do any dairy, or if you're vegan, then you have to get it from a different source. Well, cheese, I cannot take goat cheese. That's got a lot of dairy fat in it, right? For sure. For sure. Now, of course, milk is particularly important for children who、mm -hmm. are still growing. It's also important for women who have gone through menopause, and for the elderly who need more calcium in their diet because of things like.、Uh, Uh, their their bones they need it for、right. their bones which are deteriorating.、Yeah. Okay.、Um, how about your kids? Are they milk drinkers? Uh, no, because Ryan is lactose intolerant, but they eat a lot of cheese dairy products, you know,、mm -hmm. and because they they have cheese in their hamburgers, they have they eat like you know macaroni cheese. 
That's so really I think, good. you know, that's good. And they eat green veggies, not Ryan. Well, <laughs> well he eats broccoli. Oh, yeah. that's good. See, he's strange. He eats broccoli and spinach. Huh. But the, nothing else. Those are like the, the greens that most American kids don't want to eat. Right. But he eats broccoli and spinach. How does only. he eat them? Stir fry. Stir fry. Okay. It has so to be stir fry. Got to have some garlic in garlic there. Garlic in there. He loves it. You know, you might try um, that like sesame sauce, that Japanese sesame mm, humajang. Yes, 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 yes. On, especially they, if it's cold. They like it. They mm. like that too. Humajang. We call it magic sauce because okay. it goes with everything. Everything, right? Everything. It's amazing. Amazing, yes. Grace. Yes. All right. So in a moment, I'm going to be talking with Daphne Lee, who is a writer at Gold Thread. She recently wrote an article about uh, papaya milk, which mm. she calls the quirky younger sibling of uh, boba tea, which I think is the more famous Taiwanese drink. Mm. But there's some very interesting things about Taiwanese history and culture that contributed to the invention of papaya milk. Okay. And we're going to hear about that in our second course. Let's do it. But first, a song. Mm-hmm. What do we have here? We have a song called Niu Nai Milk by Rong Zhu Er. All right. Back in a moment when the feast continues.
会被伤害。忽冷忽热，他对待就像牛奶，在变酸，慢慢变坏。难道你不明白？太多的伤害会看不出来。记得你的好，怎么忍受？You're listening to Feast Meets West. Second course. We're back now on the second course of today's Feast Meets West. Now, recently, I stumbled across an article in Gold Thread. That's the food and culture wing of the South China Morning Post, and the article was called "What Is Taiwanese Papaya Milk? Boba's Quirky Sidekick." So I reached out to the author Daphne Lee to find out more. I begin by asking if she grew up drinking papaya milk.、Um, I grew up in Hong Kong, so we're pretty close to Taiwan. And then growing up, I just always thought, oh, papaya milk is just an Asian thing, and it didn't really like strike me as, oh, it's from Taiwan or or it's like something unique to Taiwan. But just growing up, a lot of people would say, oh, papaya milk would help you like grow your breast or whatever. <laughs> so like naturally. I just like had that impression in my head, and then after I moved to Taiwan, it was like some kind of staple in my diet as well. I guess Daphne explains to me that the reason papaya milk was invented in Taiwan has something to do with geography. Like most of the island is subtropical, but then you have like the Tropic of Cancer just cutting across the island. So the southernmost part of Taiwan is actually tropical, and that's where papayas grow. So I think because of this like unique location and this small island is able to produce a lot of tropical fruits. So and then later on, the government was like trying to promote milk consumption. So they were pushing for dairy farms and then sending students to the U.S. and New Zealand to learn about how to produce dairy properly. So all those things kind of happened at once. And then in addition to The manufacturing glorious days of Taiwan in the 1970s, and then Taiwan was producing a lot of appliances,、um, especially home appliances. So then, in the 1970s, when you have the climate and the milk, and then the equipment ready, and then Taiwanese just started experimenting with the blender, and then using ice, and then what kind of ingredients they have on the island, and then it sort of became this beautiful mistake. And it came papaya milk, and a lot of other、um, different kind of fruits blended with milk as well, like watermelon milk and then、um, avocado milk. That's also something in the in the Asian King. Now, no one knows for sure exactly who invented papaya milk, but Daphne has a rough idea. Well, the urban legend had it that it was a night market owner somewhere down south. I think in probably in Jiayi. And he just experimented with everything, and then it, he thought papaya combo was the best one, and then it just spiraled from there. And what about that commonly mentioned piece of household wisdom that papaya milk helps your breasts grow? Yeah, it, it's totally an urban legend. I I thought it was real growing up for the longest time, so that's why I drank a lot. But it apparently didn't help. And <laughs> and then I asked my I asked my friend,、um, my Taiwanese friend, whether 
um, he knew of this legend and he said, well, it's for only for green papaya. It's nothing that you would use to blend with milk. And if people think papaya milk helps your breast grow, it's usually because of the milk, not because of the papaya. <laughs> because the enzyme in the papaya helps with uh, breaking down protein and stuff. So it actually makes you more slim. It wouldn't help you gain weight or anything. Before we finish chatting, I wanted to circle back to the headline of her article and how she referred to papaya milk as boba's quirky sidekick. I wanted to know if I placed a glass of each of the drinks down in front of her, which one she'd go for. She thinks about it for quite some time Hmm. before asking, Can I have both? (laughs) (laughs) I want to have the bubbles in my papaya milk. (laughs) Now, you better go and trademark that because that might become the next big thing now that you've said it. I think, I think you can find it. I'm not sure where, but I'll let you know. <laughs> Again, that was Daphne Lee, a writer for Gold Thread. Up ahead on the feast, will Ellen and I sample the papaya milk even though we're both lactose intolerant? The answer is just ahead when the feast continues. Third course. Wow, interesting fact about papaya milk. Yeah, super interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So where'd you find Daphne? Well, I read this article on Gold Thread in which he uh, gave the whole history and culture of papaya milk. And I was like, you know what? That's really interesting. I just thought it was like kind of a general Asian drink that people had all over Asia. But it's unique to Taiwan. I think so, too, because when I came back to Taiwan to visit, there wasn't any, you know, boba tea. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, papaya milk that was interesting, you know, that I wanted to try because... I'm lactose intolerance. However, if my grandmother put like, you know, two portions of papaya and one little portion of milk, I can still take it. Oh, wow. I probably can handle it, you know. Wow. And then she would do that and she would like blend extra ice cubes in there. Uh Uh-huh. And that would be like, wow. And that's how she makes me drink milk. Oh, Unlike my mom, she just put like a whole glass and said, drink it. Don't leave your chair. Okay. I can picture a little Ellen Chu. No, I don't no, want to drink it. I never say no. I just sit there. She said you cannot leave the table until you drink it. I would sit there, you know, sit there till noon. Staring at the milk. Yes. And then usually it just end up accidentally. You kicked it over by mistake? Yes. Ah. Tipped over. But she would get angry and then give me a new glass and now I have to drink it. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. It's it's the whole drama. The whole drama of the milk. I had two dramas of milk when I was a kid. One was I hated to drink the milk that was left over from my cereal. Oh, I love that. You know, especially because it's like coated with chocolate, you know, inside. It'll be turned into. So I wait till it soak all the way in there. Well, I have to tell you that my parents didn't let us have cereal that had sugar in it. So it was just kind of gross, like weedy flavored. (laughs) Oh, God, you can't have Tony the Tiger. (laughs) (laughs) That is my favorite, Tony. 
need a tiger. You know, years later, I went to a, a little hipster restaurant in Taipei, mm-hmm. and they served up ice cream that was flavored like cereal milk. Mm. And I was like, no. <laughs> Why would they do that? I think it was a nostalgic thing. They thought people were nostalgic for that like sugary, milky flavor. Okay. It tasted pretty good, I have to admit, but it was mm. because it had sugar in it, okay. right? Right. All right. So then the other drama was that I actually dropped a whole carton of milk on the ground once mm-hmm. and the whole thing spilled all over the place all over the kitchen floor mm. and i cried and cried and cried and my mother was like don't cry over spilled milk okay and then i learned my first american idiom okay <laughs> Good. okay so i have poured out a little bit of papaya milk for ellen chu and a little bit of papaya milk for me mm-hmm. and it is a beautiful pinky orange color yes and ellen has already a neon, taken a sip neon color <laughs> a neon color mm-hmm mm. Not bad. Not bad. Actually, you didn't put that much milk, right? Um, I didn't make it. Uh, the nice man at the store made it. Mm. Um, he did use a lot of papaya. Okay, that's good. Chopped up lots of fresh fruit. He did normal sugar and normal ice. Um, I think if they put less ice in it, you end up with more milk. Uh-huh. So I like the fact that it's very icy. I like it icy. Nice and sweet, but not too sweet. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's almost like a papaya milkshake. I think so. The thickness, and then it has a bubble on it, mm-hmm. and it's still there. It's a little bit foamy, a little bit um, mm-hmm. sweet, and it has that nice uh, fragrance of the papaya. texture. If you mm. don't like the fragrance, because I know a lot of people don't like the fragrance of papaya, mm-hmm. then you probably wouldn't like it. But, you know, if you uh, like the fragrance and also the taste of papaya, I think this is a really nice beautiful drink and actually i think mixing it with ice and sugar and milk kind of brings away that woody taste of the papaya that mm. like that um pungent kind of it brings it down a notch it does so it's more sweet and kind of floral yes, yes. floral wow floral it's, it's kind of like wine tasting it's like floral. wine t- <laughs> <laughs> okay all right, so there you have it. That is the, I guess we should call it the older sibling of boba tea. Yes. Or maybe the older cousin yes. of boba tea, papaya mm. milk. So I wonder with this papaya milk that we had today, because they put it in a blender okay. and they put papaya in it and they put sugar and ice. I wonder if blending it together helped break down the lactose molecules. I think it's the enzyme in the papaya. Oh. Isn't that a very smart answer? So that's maybe why papaya milk is so popular in Taiwan because there are a lot of lactose intolerant people yes. in Asia in general. Yes. But if you blend the milk with something, then it may now be... Now we're very scientific. Uh, here we are just thinking we want something sweet and refreshing. Right. Uh-huh. But it actually works. Exactly. Well, if you're a doctor and you're listening to this, please write in. We would love to hear from you. <laughs> She's totally wrong. She's just a liar, like her mom said. No, just kidding. Well, hil- let us know. That'd be hilarious if somebody did write in like that. Yes. Okay. So, mm-hmm. if you feel moved by the spirit... <laughs> Send us a letter. And our email address is... P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. That's our snail mail address, but that's cool. Uh, Email us at a-n-d-r-o-o at rti.org.tw. That's right. And next Saturday, you know what I made you, Ellen Chu? What? You asked for coffee jelly. You did. And I made it for you, and I found the perfect topic for you. What is it? Do you know we're going to have a solar eclipse? Are we? We are. 
And wow. basically, the moon is going to black out the middle of the sun. So it's going to mm-hmm. be dark in the middle, and it's going to be white on the ring around the outside. It has a silver rim. That's right. The Ooh. ring of fire. All right. So basically, I made you little coffee jellies that look mm. like that. Inspired by the solar eclipse. That's right. Okay. A total eclipse of my heart for you, Ellen Chu. Oh, that is very romantic. <laughs> so romantic. Yes. Let's do it. All right. We're going to go into one final song today, also related to milk. And it's called The Black Cat and the Milk. That's right. And it's by Huang Xiaoming. All right. For Feast Meets West, I'm Andrew Ryan. This is Ellen Chu. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. 小黑猫是一只流浪的猫，它没有喝过幸福的牛奶，刮风下雨的夜晚，小黑猫只能吃着垃圾堆里发臭的菜。小男孩就是一个小男孩，没有过去也没有未来。刮风下雨的夜晚，小男孩只能不知所措，望着空去发呆。在一个樱花盛开，晚风徐徐的夜晚，小黑猫遇上了小男孩。小黑猫是一只流浪的猫，它没有喝过幸福的牛奶。刮风下雨的夜晚，小黑猫只能吃着垃圾堆里发臭的菜。小男孩就是一个小男孩，没有过去也没有未来。刮风下雨的夜晚，小男孩只能不知所措，望着空去发呆。在一个樱花盛开，晚风徐徐的夜晚，小黑猫遇上了小男孩，小男孩给了他一碗稳稳的牛奶。在一个樱。Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. 
Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.